Hello there. Welcome to a special edition of Escape Pod, the first of its kind. I'm your host and editor, Mer Lafferty. A couple of weeks ago, I chatted with Lee Harris of Angry Robot Books, and he wanted to share something very secret with me. He had just gotten the inside scoop that his author, Lauren Bucus, had won the Arthur C. Clarke Award for her novel, Zoo City. Lauren had no idea, but Lee was sharing this info with me because he wanted to offer something very special to Escape Pod, an interview and an excerpt of the novel. So if you're interested in knowing which novel won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, or you want to hear the mind behind such an amazing book, listen further. Congratulations, Lauren. This is Joe Vaz, and I'm sitting here with Lauren Bucus, the writer of Moxieland and Zoo City. Good evening, Lauren. Hi, Joe. First question, right off the top. How the hell did you get a cover quote from William Gibson on your second novel? That was crazy. He started following me on Twitter. You're kidding. Um, no, and, and I was so shocked, and I realized, okay, this is going to last 30 seconds. First of all, I had terrible pressure, like, oh my god, I better tweet something really insanely interesting. And then I was like, you know what, he's not going to follow me for longer than, like, 30 minutes, so let me try and grab him. So I sent him a private message, and I was like, hey, while you're here, would you mind if I sent you a copy of my book, Moxieland? And he was like, yeah, okay. And I was like, oh, oh god, really? And and we became friends, and it was insane. And he kept following me, and he still follows me, and, and we have a great conversation, and, and he's just, he's really nice. I'm always surprised when people are really nice, and it, it was wonderful to find out that William Gibson is not just this amazing writer who I've, I've admired for years, but also someone who's just wonderful and nice and, and generous. It's been really cool. These two books have actually opened quite a lot of doors for you in that sense. You've met some other of your idols, haven't you? Yeah, no, I've met, I've met wonderful people. Um, I've met Charlie Strauss, um, still trying to meet David Mitchell. I met Mike Carey, who writes uh, for Vertigo. He writes um, Hellblazer. Hellblazer, and, um, yeah. and this amazing new series, The Unwritten, it's wonderful. Like, really, really twisty, dark, adult kind of Harry Potter story, but really nasty, wonderful. So tell us a little bit about Moxieland. Moxieland is a dystopian urban thriller. It's about these four characters who get caught up in this crazy surveillance society corporate apartheid state, where if you work for the corporations, you're sorted and you get all these special privileges, and if you don't, you're screwed. But everyone's okay with this because they've kind of traded off uh, basic human rights for the sake of convenience, for this illusion of security. There are a couple of characters resisting. One is a culture-jamming activist who's kind of blinded by his anger against the system, Tendeka. Lorato is an AIDS baby raised by a corporation orphanage, and she works for the corporation. She's this very high-level programmer. She does kind of all these dodgy things to resist them, but mainly because she's messing around. It's it's kind of an ambitious game for her. And Kendra is uh, she's an artist. She's a fine arts photographer, and she's doing very well. She's about to have her first solo exhibition, and she's attracted corporate sponsorship. So she's got this brand logo, uh, nanotech injected under her skin. And the nanobots make her healthier and more productive and give her a serotonin rush, um, equivalent to an ecstasy high every time she indulges in the product, which is a soft drink. And the last character is Toby, who's this just an awful bastard, but really fun. He's a trust fund kid and he wanders around video casting his, his life. Um, I can't say what it's called on a family podcast, yeah. but... Um, and, and so, yeah, it's about all these characters caught up in this crazy adventure where they find out that, you know, if they think they're playing the system, it's actually the system playing them. You know, although it's said in 2018, I really feel like I'm writing about where we are right now. And a lot of the things I wrote about in Moxieland have started to happen, which has been really interesting and makes me wish I'd patented them beforehand. <laughs> it's written from the four characters' different points of view. Yeah. Was that very difficult to put that all together and to, to know what goes where? 
I'm really, I've always loved the idea of unreliable narrators. So I love the idea that one person's perspective on events might be slightly different and it's what you read between the lines that gives you kind of the idea of the truth. But I think the most important part there was just kind of really understanding, for me, where the characters came from and what their goals were and what their ambitions were. And as long as I kept that in mind, that kind of guiding principle of who they were, their voices came fairly easily. Moxieland was your first novel, but not your first published credit. You are a professional journalist, started out doing non-fiction articles, and Moxieland was then your first debut novel, is that correct? That's right. I describe myself as a recovering journalist. I, I still do occasional articles, but I don't do it full-time anymore. How was the transition from very sort of succinct journalistic style into more verbose, extremely verbose in the sense of Moxieland, <laughs> um, novel writing? Look, I've always wanted to write novels, and I've written a number of short stories before that. What's been interesting for me with the transition from journalism to novels is how much journalism's actually taught me. You know, you sit as a journalist and you have to sit and transcribe interviews, and you have to sit and transcribe hours and hours and hours of tape. And having to do that and really having to listen to how people speak, I think has given me a pretty good ear for dialogue. And that's been really nice. Journalism has also exposed me to just the craziest places in the city, from, you know, hanging out behind the back of the spa supermarket with homeless sex workers, through to interviewing nuclear physicists and, and having a tour of the Kuburg nuclear plant. Um, and, th and that's been amazing. I think that's definitely influenced my writing. It's also made you very brave. Uh, the research you did for Zoo City, I, I wouldn't go into Hilbra, and I'm twice your size. <laughs> I did go into Hillbrow with a fixer. Um, I had a security guard, a guy who runs his own security firm, Johnson Sitole, and um, he took me around. But I insisted that he didn't bring his gun. He wanted to bring his gun, and I was like, look, please, just don't. And maybe that was foolish, but, you know, I never felt unsafe in Hillbrow. I think maybe it would have been different at night, and I didn't go in at night because I just, I'd had my daughter, I think, three months before that, and I just wasn't ready to take that risk. Um, not for the sake of the novel, not at that time. But it was, Hillbrow was a wonderful place. It was really inspiring. It really felt like somewhere people live. And I think we tend to mythologize the place. You know, there's, there was that Louis Theroux special on it, um, and gangsters and drugs and crime, and people throwing televisions. But he is such a sensational. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I think it's a really amazing place and people live there, and I think we forget that. Uh, Zoo City has kind of exploded onto the scene. I mean, it's, it's really getting rave reviews across the board. Tell us a bit about Zoo City. Zoo City is a very different book. Um, it's a Muti Noir, which is kind of a Juju Noir, I guess. You just invented that, didn't you? <laughs> I invented a whole genre all to myself. And uh, yeah, so Muti is African magic. Um, and it can be traditional healing, where people, somebody goes, you know, with a headache and it's herbal, a herbal remedy for a headache. Or the, the much darker and more sinister side to that is where people use animal parts and sometimes endangered animals and sometimes human parts uh, to create especially powerful medicine. So it's kind of playing with those ideas, it's playing with ideas of traditional African magic, it's playing with the idea of this kind of gritty, urban, inner city Johannesburg, uh, and marrying those two things together. Uh, I've brought in a lot of technology, normally if you go and see a sangoma or a traditional healer, they'll throw the bones, which are an assortment of objects, and that will allow them to commune with the spirits of the ancestors. There are other ways as well, you can um, go into a trance and or use various different tools. In my universe, the sangoma uses the cell phone. Um, because he finds that, you know, the, it, it gives the spirits a cleaner line to be able to communicate with him. So, you know, I kind of messed with some, some very traditional ideas, but it's, I think it was more interesting for me to play with that than to play with kind of more conventional ideas of what magic is. 
And I think that's very much part of what Johannesburg is and, and where South Africa's at at the moment, was we, we are this very high-tech society, you know, we have ADSL and, and incredible cell phone network and um, really amazing technological applications, but at the same time we're also, we have these very, very kind of deep-rooted traditional beliefs, which go back to the spirits of the ancestors, it goes to this idea of magic, and I really wanted to explore that. So Zoo City is a Muti Noir, it's about a girl, Zinzi. Uh, who writes 419 scams or email scams for a living. You must have got them in your inbox, you know, from a Nigerian prince oh, right. you the earth. Um, so she actually writes them for a syndicate. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of those scams are full of typos. Yes. Well, Zinzi's a f former journalist, so she doesn't make typos. And she spins these really credible, interesting stories based on current events. You know, she would definitely be, have written one about what's happening in Japan at the moment. So she's, she's kind of paying off her drug debt by writing these horrible email scams. And she lives in Zoo City, which is Hillbrow, which is where the people with animals get kind of forced into this area. Basically what happens is if you've committed a terrible crime, maybe it's your guilt that manifests as a magical animal, maybe it's something imposed on you from above, it could be your guardian angel, or the lost spirits of the ancestors, or the devil on your back. No one really understands what the animals are or where they come from. But, you know, if you have an animal, you're basically a hardcore criminal. And people see that and they force them into kind of segregated areas. Um, so she lives in this area and she gets asked to um, help find a missing pop star. She has the magical ability to find lost things. She can literally sense kind of a thread running from you to your lost car keys. And she gets asked to find this missing teenage pop star. And it all goes horribly, horribly wrong. She goes to a very, very dark place um, in Johannesburg and it ties into kind of this idea of Muti, ideas about refugees, the music industry, guilt and crime and redemption and street kids. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it becomes quite intense and quite complicated. How did you come up with the concept? I mean, Zoo City is, I can see certain influences in there, but the bulk of it is totally original. It's just, you know, it just hits the reader out of the blue. A lot of my story ideas kind of develop like Polaroids. Um, I, it's, I get a sense of an image and it, the more I think about it, the more it kind of comes into focus and crystallizes and clarifies. And with Zoo City, I had an image of a girl walking to a cupboard in one of these awful, you know, tenement slums. And I think that was very much inspired by David Goldblatt's photographs. He's an amazing photographer who's done a lot of work in Hillbrow. Um, and so it was a girl walking up to a cupboard. She opens the cupboard and there's a sloth and she kind of pulls it onto her shoulders, almost like a jacket or a backpack. And I had the real sense that this was both a burden um, and, and a gift. And it was kind of the possibility of redemption and as well. almost an item of clothing. Exactly. Definitely. So this, and this very kind of everyday thing, that it wasn't special, it wasn't magical, it was that, you know, exactly as you or I would get dressed for the day. And what was the next question you asked yourself when you got that picture in your head? How did you take the next step? Well, I knew that she had the magical ability to find lost things, and I knew immediately that she was going to run foul of this couple, uh, the Marabou and the Maltese, a very kind of tall, gangly woman with this horrendous carrion bird strapped to her back. And this very, you know, charming, dashing man with, with a Maltese poodle dyed bright orange. But I knew that they were really sinister and I knew who they worked for. And then I had to work out the rest from there. But, you know, I think for me, there, there was this great analogy. I think it might be Ursula K. Le Guin. I, I don't know who to attribute it to. But somebody described writing as like going on a road trip at night. You know where you're leaving from and you know where you're going to. But for the actual drive, you can see 20 feet ahead of you in the headlights, and the rest is just darkness, and you have to kind of make your way as you go. And that really describes my process. You know, I know, I know where I'm starting from. I always know where I'm going to end up, 
and it's the middle bit which kills me. That's the long, hard slog. But it's also it's also interesting. Books never turn out exactly the way I thought they would. I mean, the endings are always exactly what I thought, but the middle bit just veers off in a completely different direction. And and I think those detours are what partly what makes writing so exciting for me. How long did it take you to write Moxieland? Four years. And how long did it take you to write Zoo City? One year. And had you just had a child while writing Zoo City? Yes. How the hell did you do that? Well, I did the final edits on Moxieland while I was pregnant and nauseous and exhausted. I had the baby, I had my, my daughter, and I started Zoo City kind of when she was three months old and wrote it for that time. Yeah, you do what you have to do. Did you feel there was a, a difference in the process of, of writing the two books? Were you, I don't know, perhaps more possessed by the story for Zoo City? No, Moxieland took me so long because I mucked around a lot. Um, and it's interesting, I've just seen writer friends go through this, exactly the same process where you keep putting off the writing and it's easier to talk about and it's easier to polish the first three chapters until they gleam. But actually finishing a novel is a hell of a thing. You know, I'd written a book, I'd written a non-fiction before Moxieland, but it was a long, hard slog. I did a lot of interesting stuff in between. I launched a kids' TV show, I wrote my non-fiction. But ultimately, I, it, was, it was messing around. It was messing around, it was trying not to deal with it, I was terrified of failing. And, you know, my advice to any would-be novelist is finish the damn book. Leave the first three chapters alone and finish the damn thing, then fix it. You don't know how to fix something until you've got the whole thing down. You brought up your uh, animated TV series, which is a great segue, to list some of the things that you do, other than being a novelist. <laughs> you are a scriptwriter, a director, um, documentary filmmaker, I hear, and there are rumors about a comic book. I've just directed a documentary called Glitter Boys and Ganglands, and it's about uh, drag queens in the Cape Flats, um, which is this very kind of, um, it's a very mixed area in Cape Town, but there's a lot of poverty and gangsterism, and middle, you know, good middle class families as well. But it's, it's a fascinating story about these great characters as they kind of move through towards the big pageant day. And yeah, so uh, I've written a kid show for Disney called Flory's Dragons, which is really fun. I worked on it with my co-conspirator Sam Wilson, who's fantastic. And I've just done a nine-page comic for Vertigo's Strange Adventures anthology, which is coming out May 25th. And I'm really excited about that. I've always wanted to write comics. You know, I mean, I've, I've been a scriptwriter for a long time, and I've directed episodes of the animated series that I worked on. But the, the storyboarding process in directing animation is very straightforward. It's very linear. You know, it's one, two, three panels, and you move on to the next page. And the same, you know, obviously with films. But with comics, there's so much um, variety and so much flexibility in what you can do with the layout of the panels. And that really stymied me. And I had to have a lot of hand-holding from a very patient and wonderful editor um, and an incredible artist, Inaki Miranda, to get me through that. But that was really, really interesting. The other thing which was really interesting is you can't have this long, waffling kind of monologue thing. You've got to keep your dialogue so tight. You know, like two sentences is actually too long. So you've got to convey so much information in a single sentence. And, and that was really interesting. It was really fun. How did you get involved in that? It was pure fluke. I met Bill Willingham, who writes Fables, at Worldcon in 2009, which is the big science fiction convention. Yeah, he was just at the bar, and we got chatting, and we had a wonderful conversation. And uh, he came to a reading that I did. And he was so impressed with the reading, which was from Moxieland, that he insisted that I go and see his editor at Vertigo when I flew out by New York. And I was like, you're crazy. I have nothing to show her. I have nothing to say. You know, and he's like, trust me, the two of you will get on my house on fire. And we did. I think it was maybe kind of a, a haunted house on fire, but, you know. Zoo City's an incredible follow-up to Moxieland. It's, it's so often that the second book or the second album or the second film or whatever is slightly inferior to the first because most artists have their entire lives to produce their first product and working to a tight deadline to produce their second product. How did you manage to pull off such a great book? 
so quickly. <laughs> I think I was really lucky that uh, Moxieland didn't take off to the same extent that Zoo City has. So it was kind of more of a slow burn, so I wasn't hit with this massive overwhelming success and all the insanity that comes with it. Which is great, but it's also, you know, horrible. Because I think that can be paralyzing, and I think that's what you see so often, is you see someone have an amazing breakout success and then they're just paralyzed because they feel the weight of these expectations. And I definitely do feel those expectations, but I am... I, I'm, I have crushing insecurity at the best of times, so I'm probably okay. <laughs> and I think what also helps is that I'm, I'm writing in other fields. You know, I'm a journalist as well, I, I, I'm a script writer, and I actually really like deadlines. I like working to a deadline because it forces you to take the work seriously. And so basically when I sold Mark's Atlanta Angry Robot, I got a two-book deal, and they said, right, you have to deliver by December. Um, and I delivered by March, but, you know, they were, they were okay with that. Um, so three months late or seven months early? Yeah, three months late. <laughs> Um, but to, you know, to have a meaningful deadline that you might get legitimately sued over, that, that makes a huge difference to actually delivering a book. And I like working to a deadline, I really do. One of the things I've always marveled about you is your ability for publicity. You're kind of a publicity queen. Both <laughs> just... Zoo City and Moxieland have got a string of, of merchandise and stuff that comes with it. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I would love to say that the merchandising was part of this grand strategic plan. But it was actually just because it was fun. You're just a fangirl at heart. Yeah, I'm, t I'm a totally, I'm a total fangirl, and it was really exciting to see what other people did with my, with my baby. You know, so I created this novel, and um, both both books have a a toy, um, an art toy, which is associated with them, and both novels have an official soundtrack from African Dope. Now, I loved African Dope. For me, African Dope is like the signature sound of Cape Town, especially in kind of the early 2000s. Um, that that was Cape Town for me. So when I did Mark's Land, I wanted a soundtrack, and because Mark's Land is set in Cape Town, I went to African Dope, and I was like, look, crazy idea, would you do a soundtrack for a book? And they said yes. And they opened up their entire catalog, I went through it with DJ Honeybee, and we selected the tracks which best fit with the book, and put together the most kick-ass album. And, um, and it was really fun. Then we did the same for Zoo City, and um, with the toys, Moxie was inspired, there was a cover monster on the South African edition. And we, we uh, my friend Sarah Lotz, who's a wonderful horror writer, set up a women's collective um, of, you know, empowering women basically living on the breadline to make these toys. And we raised 15,000 Rand for them. That's incredible. Um, which, I don't know what the exchange rate is. Probably about $2,000? Just over. Um, and I wanted to do the same with Sioux City, so I approached MI Collective, who make beautiful um, kind of vinyl toys. They make their own range of vinyl toys called the Bears. And they're about one foot high. And I got five South African designers and illustrators to customize these bears, somehow inspired by the novel, and we used them again to raise money for a charity. And because Zoo City is set in Hillbrow, and because it's about refugees, I found a refugee kids' charity in Hillbrow, and we raised 18,000 rand for them. And so it was really cool. So I got to see how these artists interpreted my words in the most amazing ways, mind-blowing ways, and I also got to raise money for charity. You know, so it was like perfect excuse to do a really cool collaboration, which did some good. It was, it was fun. So what does Lauren Bucus have in store for the world next? Doom! Doom! Oh, goody! <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping to do some, some more comics. Um, I've got a new novel that I'm working on, which I've become a bit superstitious about talking about. Okay. Because I think if you talk too much about a novel, you can kill it. But the information that's already out there is that it's an apartheid thriller, and it's about the real-life occult crimes unit. And I interviewed the real guys from the occult crimes unit, and the stories they told me put the idea for the novel to shame. You know, it's just, they were so crazy, and they were such amazing characters, they completely overshadowed my fictional characters, and the crazy stuff they told me was just mental. Um, and I don't actually know how to process it or use it, I might have to throw it all out 
or write non-fiction about, about that. Um, it was very, very interesting. Thank you very much, Lauren. And your books are available at Amazon. And Amazon, uh, at Angry Robot, my international publisher, has a great deal where um, they sell the ebooks for less than $5 and they're DRM free and they're not geo locked. So wherever you are in the world, you can actually buy the ebooks, which is awesome. Oh, and the French edition of Zoo City is coming out in June. You've been translated! Yes! <laughs> That's so cool! That's right. Well, congratulations, Lauren. Thank you. And thank you for joining me. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> right, get the pizza out. <laughs>
His goateed friend says, but their laughter is hollow. No man, Mrs. Khan says, annoyed. Shows what you know, it's a gang war, definitely. The 207s were moving in on the Cameroonians two weeks ago now. This is revenge. You'll see. Mr. Khan tries to shoo his daughter back to her bed. Come on, my baby, you need to rest for school tomorrow. But the girl doesn't move. This is better than TV. And probably better than school, too, as far as her life education is concerned. On the street below, there is another shot. The bear's shoulder collapses with a jerk. It roars in pain, rises to its full height, and then seems to think better of it. The man tugs at the bear's arm, trying to get it to move. It roars again and drops back on all fours. The man starts to run, gesturing urgently for the bear to follow him. It starts after him, but it's too late. More bullets, AK-47 rounds this time, rip through the animal, knocking it sideways. The man screams and starts running back towards the bear, then hesitates. The bear shambles another step, and then collapses on its backside with a surprised woof. It tries to get up, confused. The AK-47 stutters again. The bear's forepaws slide out from under it. Its jaw strikes the curb with an audible crack. The people at the windows wince. Very slowly, the bear's head lolls to one side. The man turns and runs like hell is on his heels. It will be. We hold our collective breath. A Tsotsi, holding that favorite weapon of revolutionaries, criminals and revolutionaries turned criminals, walks cautiously out from beneath the scaffolding of the trees, the AK-47 at his hip ready to be swung up. There is a blur of wings hovering above his shoulder, a hummingbird. He walks up to the bear and prods it with his foot. It doesn't move. He empties another clip into it anyway. The bird darts forward to sea, darts back again. There are sirens in the distance. Private security, not police. You can tell by the pitch of the wail. The Tsotsi looks up and sees half the buildings standing at their windows watching. He gives us a cheerful wave and steps back into the trees, his bird darting about his head. We know what's coming. None of us say anything. The mongoose paces the window ledge, whiskers quivering. The sirens get louder. The bear lies motionless on the pavement, beside the metal frame of a licensed vendor's stall. The air pressure dips, like before a storm. A keening sound wells up soft and low, as if it's always been there, just outside the range of human hearing. It swells to howling. And then the shadows start to drop from trees, like raindrops after a storm. The darkness pools and gathers and then seethes. The Japanese believe it's hungry ghosts. The Scientologists claim it's a physical manifestation of suppressive engrams. Some eyewitness reports describe teeth grinding and ripping in the shadows. Video recordings have shown only impenetrable darkness. I prefer to think of it as a black hole, cold and impersonal as space. Maybe we become stars on the other side. I turn away as the darkness rushes down the road in the direction of the running man. Mr. Khan covers his daughter's eyes, although it's her ears he should be protecting. The screaming only lasts a few awful seconds before it is abruptly cut off. Yo, 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 Mrs. Khan says to break the silence that's weighing down on us, like someone has turned up the gravity. Yo, this city... Incidentally, Lauren is also nominated for the Campbell Award this year, so maybe that snippet of her novel will help you with your voting. 
I want to thank Angry Robot for the special opportunity to air this content, and thank Lauren for providing it, even though she didn't know why. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is produced under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, with all other rights reserved by our authors. We will resume regular EP programming tomorrow with a new story. Thank you for listening to this special edition.